your Bibles today and turn to the book of Esther, chapter 2. Last week I had the privilege of being uh, officiating a wedding in North Carolina in the mountains to the point where the limo was a tractor that drove us to the top of a Christmas tree farm. And I've had several say, I hope you enjoyed your vacation. I said, well, we were away, but it wasn't exactly a vacation. We were so far in the mountains that during the rehearsal on Saturday, as I was practicing the vows with them, a turkey started gobbling on the hillside. And for those of you that know me, we might as well have just quit right then. Uh, there was a couple of the groomsmen that were also hunters with me, and I immediately with my mouth started making this hen call and lighting this gobbler up on the hillside. And my wife's just sitting there going, oh, no. And so I told the couple, if a deer walks through here or turkey gobbles during the wedding, we're just going to take a little time and, uh, and I'm going to be distracted. But it was a beautiful wedding and uh, thank you for your prayers. And thank you for you, those of you who have been praying for our grandson who started uh, rabies shots this week after playing with a bat that they found in the yard. And um, uh, he also had been going through a severe stomach virus, but yesterday his fever broke. And uh, my daughter said he's acting normal again, which means wild. And uh, for that, we give God thanks. For those of you who are mothers who complain about your children, they're running wild, and then they get sick, you are so thankful when they run wild again because they're back to normal. And for that, we give God thanks. In Esther chapter 2, beginning with verse 7, I just want to read a couple of verses. It says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadessa, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and feature, and Mordecai had taken care of her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Lord God, as we have been on this series about how our past does not determine our future, you have indicated to us time and time again that we come to a moment where we crossroads or intersect your grace and if we Determine that we will act by faith. What you do with our lives from that point on is miraculous and brings glory to you. And so, Lord, today as we begin to discuss and look at and examine the figure and the lifestyle of, of a beautiful young lady in the Bible, of Esther, I pray that you would begin to reveal to us the truths of what it was like for her in a moment of faith that would be applicable to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. Nowhere in the Bible are the fingerprints of God shown more clearly than in the book of Esther. In fact, Esther is the only book in the whole Bible where the fingerprints of God are the only evidence of His presence. If you start reading from the very first verse of Esther all the way through the closing chapter, it will be the only book that will never mention the name of God even once. That cannot be said of any other book in the Bible. Not only is God's name not found, neither are there any references to God's people sacrificing to Him or worshiping Him or serving Him. 
There are no references in the Word of God as it relates to Esther about His laws, obedience, or instructions. Yet while the name of God is not present in the book of Esther, His fingerprints are everywhere. And the theological term for this is providence. The providence of God. Providence means the work of God whereby He integrates and blends events in order to fulfill His original design. Providence simply means in layman's terms that God is sitting behind the steering wheel of the car of life and can steer it wherever He wants. There have been things that have happened in your life. As you look back over it, and especially those of you who are people of faith, that you thought was a mistake when they happened. You begin to question God as to why this is going on and what is going on. And it wasn't until later on that you realized that what you thought was a mistake was really something God did on purpose. Sometimes things may look completely out of order in the visible realm when they are perfectly in order in the spiritual realm, having been arranged that way so that God could bring about His perfect plan within a life. And today as we examine the life of Esther, when we've been talking about this series of from dirty to destiny or life-changing moments that changed somebody from who they were into somebody that could be used of God, we wouldn't necessarily think of Esther's life before this as dirty, but there certainly came a moment in time when her destiny was determined by a decision that she would make. So we look at Esther and we wonder why God is not directly mentioned. And we must understand that at the history of this moment of time, when Esther was recorded, that God's people were living outside of His will. This was not God's plan for them at this time. He had instructed them to go back to Israel from Babylon. But many of His people chose rather to stay where they were because they had become comfortable. How many of you know that sometimes being comfortable keeps you from God's best? They had grown comfortable with where they were. And even though living as a minority culture in a foreign land must have been challenging, the children of Israel had become so accustomed to their way of life that they grew comfortable living in disobedience to God. And we are not immune to that feeling. As I said this morning, God, as we walk through faith, is going to constantly lead us into stretching circumstances of our life. He does not want us as a church or individuals as families to grow comfortable because when we grow comfortable, we stop moving. We settle. We sit. We camp. We live. And all we want is the blessing and we continue to miss out on what God wants to lead us into, which is victory. And because Esther takes place in the context of people living outside the will of God, God takes a step back and does not even allow His name to be used in the book. And yet, even without direct mention of God's name, this book contains some of the most profound spiritual principles that can be found anywhere. And if you will truly grasp and own the principles found in the book of Esther, they can literally change the course of your life. So as we begin this morning, let me tell you the story of Esther. Let's look to God's Word. You can kind of thumb through your Bible because I'm going to give you a quick highlight of the entire uh, book. In chapter 1, we are introduced to the story of Esther. When the Persian king Ahasuerus ruled the province from India all the way to Ethiopia. Ahasuerus today in our language would be known as a party animal. In fact, if you were to look at the book, you'll discover that there were 
five banquets that were recorded in the first two chapters of Esther alone, which indicates these are major parties when the king throws a party. And one night when he was drunk at one of these parties that he had had, he sent seven of his eunuchs, which are sterilized men that worked with the staff of the kingdom, to bring his queen Vashti to his side. Now, when a person becomes drunk, they quit thinking rationally. They do unexpected things, such as summoning his wife to show her off before all of the other drunk and rowdy and raunchy men that are at that party. And more than likely, when he summoned Vashti to come, it wasn't simply so that she could put on her best gown and walk the runway in front of them. Chances are, because of the culture they lived in, it meant that there would be some sort of undress or uncovering or revealing that would take place, and Vashti the queen was uncomfortable with that. And so she refused to come, and it upset the king. And his anger burned within him, and he asked his advisors what should be done. All of his advisors were men, by the way. And all of these men told him that if you allow her to get away with this, our wives are all going to begin to disobey us. And whenever we summon them, they're going to say, we don't have to come because Vashti didn't come. King, you cannot let her get away with this. And in the wisdom of those group of men that were together, they began to tell the king what he should do. And so the king banished Vashti from the kingdom, revoked her title, threw her away for life. And as you move into chapter 2, it wasn't long after that party that the king began to grow lonely after he got sober. And he began to realize that in a drunken decision he had made that maybe that wasn't quite the right thing and he didn't look so good on a, on a throne without a beautiful queen beside him. And according to the law of the Medes and Persians, not even the king could re- reverse his own decision after it had been made. And so in that moment of loneliness and depression, he again called his advisors and they said, Listen, you're the king. Why don't you allow us to go out into all 127 provinces or states, as we would call them today, that you rule. Let us go through the land and we will bring to you every attractive virgin that is there. We'll bring them before you and you can choose a new queen out of all of this. And King Ahasuerus liked the idea of starring in his own version of The Bachelor. And so he sent them out. And as they're going through the provinces, they came to the province in which Esther lived. And Esther, as we know, was an orphan who was being raised by her cousin Mordecai. And the Bible tells us that Esther was beautiful. So Mordecai tells her to show up and look beautiful, which probably was not hard for her to do. But he said, don't tell anybody where you came from and don't tell anybody that you're an Israelite. So Esther followed Mordecai's instructions and was chosen to return with the other beauties of her province to the king. The scripture tells us she was given a personal handler named Hegai to help her and that he found her to be especially beautiful and found favor in his eyes. And he gave her 12 months of beauty treatments. Now, for all of you husbands who think your wife takes a long time to get ready for a date, 12 months she took just for a few moments to stand before the king so we have nothing whatsoever to complain about. When it came time for Esther to visit the king in his palace, the king saw her and loved her more than the other women and made, him, made her his queen. Mordecai, her cousin, took up residence living near the gate of the castle so that he could keep his eyes and ears open on what was happening. And during that time, he overheard two of the officials that wanted to overthrow the king and kill him. So he sent messages in to spare the king's life, and the officials were hanged. And all of this was recorded in the book of records. 
If you move to chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman, who was a dear friend of the king but was not a very kind man. He was given a high position in the kingdom and he loved every moment of attention that he could get. Haman was annoyed that every time the king would elevate him, that Mordecai, the old Jew at the gate, would not acknowledge him. Everybody's bowing down to Haman, but Mordecai really kicked him off. That this man who he thought deserved more respect from would refuse to kneel to him. And so Haman's anger leads him to a plot to execute all of the Jews in the kingdom just because he's really mad at Mordecai. And Haman persuades the king that the Jews somehow pose a threat to the kingdom. And he says, if you'll just sign this, we can exterminate all of them. And the king signed it. Chapter 4 begins when Mordecai found out what was going to happen, begins to tear his clothes and weep, begins to seek the power of God as to direction, just overwhelmed by the sadness of what was happening. And in order to prevent the execution of the Jews, Mordecai calls on Esther to intercede with the king. The only problem here was that the king does not know Esther's a Jew. And Esther had no idea how the king was going to respond when he found out. Moving into chapter 5, Esther was afraid of what may happen as she approaches the king, but she receives his favor. She asked the king to bring Haman, his friend, into a banquet the next day that she would host. And meanwhile, Haman's hatred for Mordecai grows to the point where he builds this enormous gallows so high that the whole land can see it so that he can hang Mordecai on it the next morning to prove to everybody that he deserves the honor that the king is giving him. Haman was going the next morning to ask permission to hang Mordecai when he went to the banquet that the queen had thrown. And that night, before Mordecai was to be hanged, the king couldn't sleep. He asked for the record books to be read to him, and he was reminded that Mordecai had saved his life. So in an extraordinary change of events, as Haman shows up to speak to the king, the king asks him, Haman, what do you think should be done for somebody who saves my life or who I think highly of? And Haman begins to list all of these things that should be done because he thinks he's talking about him. And at the end of all of these things, this list that he gives, the king looks at him and said, Haman, that's wonderful. I like every idea, and that's just what I want you to do for Mordecai. Can you imagine the horror and humiliation that Haman must have suffered? You've got to read the book of Esther if you haven't. As you move into chapter 7, Esther reveals to the, queen, the, the king that she is a Jew and that Haman has plotted to kill them all. The king is furious. He'd been tricked by Haman and, and he stomps out of the room. And as he stomps back into the room, Haman knew his life was in jeopardy and is pleading to the queen. And somehow when the king walks back in, they have fallen together on a couch. It, in the king's eyes, looks as if Haman is trying to assault his queen. And within a second, it says that there was a covering put over his head and he was taken out and hanged on the very gallows that he had built. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 talk about how all the Jews are saved. A new edict is given. Esther was given all of the property that Haman and his family had once had, and Mordecai receives the ring that Haman had been wearing. And as we look a little bit deeper now into the life of what was going on in Esther, we have to declare today that Esther was what we would call today a diva. Esther the diva. The Scripture says to us that she was beautiful in form and face. Now, let me put this into layman's terms for you. She was a 10. She probably was almost as beautiful as my wife. And my wife is working in the nursery and didn't even hear that. So if you would tell her that, I would appreciate it. Esther wasn't just pretty. 
Esther was gorgeous. In fact, as I begin to think about it, if Esther lived today, she would have a TV show, a reality show called The Esther Experience. Her picture would be on the front of magazines. Tabloids would run stories about her. Is Esther too thin? What is Esther wearing and where did she buy it? You too can dress like Esther on a budget. How you can live on the diet that Esther eats in the palace. There would be a book called Esther's Friends Tell All. In fact, Esther's name literally means star. It literally means star. Esther was used to winning beauty contests. Esther was used to winning the favor of people everywhere she went. If her chariot broke down, she didn't change her own tire. All she had to do was get out. Esther was used to being stared at. She was used to getting people to do what she wanted because she was beautiful. When she and her cousin Mordecai heard that the king was holding an addition for a new queen, she didn't enter into the provincial queen sweepstakes hoping that she might be one of the chosen. She knew she would be. Because everybody had told her whole, her whole life how beautiful that she was. After the first cut, she knew that she would be chosen. And after making it to the finals where she would have 12 months to prepare to have her audience before the king, this is what the Bible says it was like for Esther. In Esther chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this is what it says. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls... Many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. And then it says this, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who was in charge of the harem. So there were a lot of girls that were in this particular group from her province that went and were placed under this guy's care. Then it says the girl, Esther, pleased him, him being Hegai, and won his favor. I'd like you, just as you're reading that book, to underline every time you see the word won. Because there are a lot of them. She won everything. She won contests. She won favor. Everywhere she went, she won. She pleased him and won his favor. And immediately, immediately, with all of these other girls around, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food, which means this is food that the other contestants didn't get. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. This doesn't sound like somebody who's living life too hard. The best place. She's used to this. She bats her eyes, puckers her lips, sashays, and wins. I don't know what that is like. Verse 15, when the time came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of his harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor, now I love this line, of everyone who saw her. She won the favor of everyone who saw her. She's walking into the contest and people are just going. She walks into a room with all of the other selected contestants from the provinces and they go, I don't like her. 
she gets special treatment everywhere she goes. The one who's in charge of things give her the best apartment, the best food, the best treatments. And all the people do is when they look at her, they everyone considers her who sees her easily. They give her her favor. And verse 17. Now it's Esther's time. You have to understand that probably for a year, the king has spent every night with a different virgin. Who knows how many there were left after Esther to come through. The fact that Mordecai would put his cousin in a situation where she was going to be involved in immoral activity tells you how far outside the will of God the people had fallen during that time. But it says in verse 17, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than every other woman, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So in that very instant... He said, contest over. Send the rest of them home. Don't need them. Found my winner. It's Esther. And he puts a crown on her head and made her queen. What a tough life. Even the palace help, who was used to the best of everything, was fawning over Esther. I'm sure that the other girls were jealous. And after being treated special like this, your whole life, you can begin to think that the whole world revolves around you. Now, I know some beautiful people. I know people that somehow believe that they can get away with anything because they're beautiful or because they've just been used to winning everything. They're winners in their mind and they grow accustomed to having everything just the way they want it. And so when Esther was originally challenged a little bit later on by Mordecai to risk her own life to potentially save others, she balked. And she played the diva card. It was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I got things good here. Why would I jeopardize my comfort for you? And actually, her fears begin to grow because, number one, she was the queen of a king who had not summoned her in a month. I was thinking about that this morning. In terms of those of you who have ever gone on dates with a guy who at the end of the night says, man, I really enjoyed myself and says, uh, I look forward to seeing you again and then doesn't call you in a month, what do you think the chances are of a second date? She hadn't been summoned to the king for a month. She may think in her own heart little seeds of doubt. Maybe he doesn't like me as much as everybody else. She had to approach a man who had banished his last queen because he was drunk one night. And she didn't do what he had requested. This was the same man who had given Haman permission to annihilate an entire people group simply because Haman wanted to. And Esther's fears began to grow to protect one thing, and that was Esther. She thought of herself. And when the greatest thing that matters to you is you, then even if you are in the kingdom, you miss the kingdom principles. If in your life there is nothing more important than you, you need to re-examine your principles and your priorities. One of the things that I told this couple last week at their wedding was one of the greatest things they could do was to learn to give their lives away. Number one, to God, then to each other, and then find a cause that God would lead them in to give their lives and energy to because when you give yourself away is when life is fulfilled. If all you do is live your life trying to protect you, you will be profoundly unfulfilled. And you will miss the kingdom principles. And Mordecai approaches Esther. 
And when she's thinking only of herself, and he tells her, this is the danger that we are in, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone, underline those words, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai approaches her on the basis of this selfishness. He says, listen, cousin. I know that you're used to winning everything. I know that you're used to batting your eyes and walking around and looking pretty and everybody do what you say. But I want you to know you're in danger here. Because when they find out who you are, your beauty is not going to keep you alive and it's not going to keep your family alive and it's not going to keep your people alive. You're going to go down too. And for one time, you need to step up and think of somebody other than yourself. Because it might be that God put you here for this very reason. And as we begin to look at the deeper spiritual principles of this, as we begin to look upward, we recognize that Esther didn't witness God moving behind the scenes until she went forward and took the risk. Listen to this. In Scripture, time and time and time again, we see that God calls us to act in faith, to take steps of faith. And one of the things about that is that God doesn't act until we act in obedience. God doesn't always tell you what's coming ahead of time. Sometimes He says, you know what, when you obey, I'll move. Because I need you to step out so that it sets the place for me to begin to move in and do my thing. We have no idea what would have happened had Esther said to her cousin, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to risk. I believe that I will be spared. And my whole life things have gone well for me, so maybe I'll just play this out. The Bible says that after being confronted, after he says you cannot remain silent, it could be that God is going to use you, that Esther in that moment of decision decided to take the risk that God was up to something even though His name is not mentioned, but His fingerprints are all over this. And the providence of God is at work to save His people even when they are leaving, living in disobedience. So the Scripture tells us that Esther, doing what she knows how to do best, went outside the throne room and it says she stood there in the king's sight. What was she doing? Batting her eyes, puckering her lips, looking good. It was her spiritual gift. And the king looks out the door and he sees her. He's like, man, she's beautiful. And so he invites her in. And the Bible tells us that Esther received the favor of the king and he extends his scepter to her. Now, if he hadn't have done this, he could have had her killed. Her life was on the line when she took that step of faith. And Esther begins to tell him, listen, I'm planning a banquet and I want you to come. And why don't you bring your best friend Haman? Please come tomorrow. It'll be a wonderful time. Haman that night, as we know, was planning this scheme of how he wanted to destroy Mordecai, who he was kicked off because Mordecai was disrespecting him. And in one of the most interesting places in the Bible, God's providential hand at work, 
And that night, the king couldn't sleep. How many of you have ever had a sleepless night? How many of you are rich enough to have people come and read you the record book when you can't sleep? I didn't think so. Honestly, as you look at it, this would be the best book that the king would want read because it was probably so boring he figured it was going to put him to sleep. It's what happens when you wake up in the middle of the night and you start reading the Bible. Satan wants you to sleep. The enemy will want you to go to sleep. And so the book of records is brought in and the king in whatever stage of sleepiness he's in hears about how Mordecai outside the gate had warned him and he just stopped. He goes, hey, hey, hey. He goes, what have we ever done to, to reward him? The guy who had to get up in the middle of the night, be summoned to go get the book and go into the king's room and read it to him, says, nothing. Nothing's been done. So the king's mind began to work as to what can I do? Well, I'll just ask Haman tomorrow what I can do. And we know the story that Haman thinks the king is talking about him, and so he gets very extravagant, and then Haman ends up leading the horse that Mordecai sits on. Esther reveals her plan at a banquet. The king comes in, and she takes the risk. She tells him who she is and the people that she's of. Haman begins to get nervous because he recognizes that what he has done in the dark is now coming to light. How many of you know that the enemy does his best work in the dark and that when you begin to bring the light of truth and the light of honesty and the light of God's presence in there, Satan is going to flee because he doesn't like what he's doing to be seen. And so the king, now that things are beginning to be aware of what's happening, gets very, very angry at Haman. Haman recognizes in an instant. How many of you know God can turn things around in a minute? In a minute, everything changed. She foils Haman's plans. Mordecai is honored. The Jews are saved. Haman is hanged. All of his land goes to Esther. Mordecai ends up with the ring. Why? Because God is just waiting for us to step out in obedience so that He can put His plan into place. A diva decided in one moment to quit thinking only about herself and think about others, and God used her. So what does this mean to us this morning? Her life teaches us some vital lessons. Number one, there's a preparation time. She spent 12 months preparing to go before the king. There are times in your life where God is going to call something, your life to something, or He's going to plant a burden on your heart, or He's going to begin just to lay something in your heart, and you're wondering, how soon, Lord? How soon is this going to take place? Sometimes we like to push the doors open. Sometimes we like to force the hand of God. Sometimes we, in our the fact that we are simply impatient people, want to say, okay, God, you've, you've laid this on my heart. I'm ready to do it right now. And God says, no, 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 no. There's a time of preparation. That time of preparation can be very frustrating. It's a time of preparation where you can begin to question God. You can begin to question yourself. You begin to say, did I really hear what God was saying? Lord, I thought this was of you. Maybe not some of the people in that time of preparation decide to back off. Not only do they not prepare, but they bury the dream. God has a number of things He wants to do if we'll just let Him prepare us. Some of us need to be prepared in prayer. Some of you need to dig back up things that you have buried that God laid upon your heart a long time ago and begin to ask God to wash it in prayer and make that burden come brand new again because it's time for you to prepare for what God wants you to do. If you think God can build His kingdom on preachers alone, you're wrong. 
He says He has made each of you priests. And if you sit back and say, Lord, you're going to have to do it with somebody else, He'll raise somebody else, but you will have missed the blessing of what God wants to do in your life. Because there comes times of preparation so the Lord can do in us what He needs to do. We also understand from this that we need the favor of God. A number of people have asked, Pastor, how should we pray for you? How can we pray for our church? Pray for the favor of God. Pray for the favor of God. In just a few moments, I'm going to have the worship team come back up and, and I'm going to have them sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus Again in Freedom. And, and I, I sense this morning that some of you have been battling chains. They've been holding you and, and you feel battled in your mind and you feel captured in your spirit and there's been no joy and there's been no peace. And today the Lord wants to set you free. And have a moment when you just simply take your eyes off yourself for a moment and look away from the selfishness and look to Jesus who can take care of everything. And begin to open up your hands and say, Lord, it's no longer about me. I'm sorry I've been a diva. I'm sorry I've been selfish. But today, Lord, I simply want to ask for your favor. I want to ask that my life be lived in such a way that you can pour out blessing upon me because I qualify by the way that I live and the things that I speak. Next, we learn that your background does not hinder your future in God. They were a captive people in a strange land. She had no right to be named queen. But God says, you know what? Where you came from doesn't matter to me. When you have an interaction with the cross that changes you, what I can do in your life will be more magnificent than anything you would have done. Your past does not have to hinder your future with God. And God can shake you from your self-sitteredness in time to use you for the benefit of others. Proverbs chapter 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. That's good news for you and me. The king, the most powerful man in the world, and if his heart is in the hand of God, then whose hands is your boss's heart in? Whose hand is your family member's heart in? Whose hand is your present circumstance in? If God can direct an entire government and save a nation simply by keeping a king awake one night, He can certainly fix whatever mess you might be in if you'll simply step out in faith and trust Him. I conclude with this story and I ask our worship team to please come. Tony Evans tells an account where he had accepted a job while he was in Bible school. He was working the graveyard shift at the Trailways bus station. He'd only been there a few days when some of the employees or all of the employees that worked with him that night at the night shift came to him to talk to him about a scheme that was going in. They had worked it out where somebody would punch you in even if you weren't there. And you could sleep an extra hour or two longer than you normally would. And they had worked it out so that every person during the course of a pay period would be able to be punched in by somebody else and sleep an extra few hours. Essentially, you'd be paid for sleeping. It was a cheat system. It's kind of like being paid off the books. Nobody knows what's going on except God who keeps records. 
And he talked to them and he said, I can't be a part of your scheme because as a Christian I can't do it because it's dishonest. It might be easy, but it's just dishonest. And their response was simple to him. He says, you don't have a choice. Everybody does it. And again, he replied, he said, I'm sorry, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, I cannot participate in your scam. Needless to say, the rest of the employees were very upset and didn't like it, and so they tried to punish him. Trucks where five people would be assigned to take away all the luggage, the other four would sit down and say, go for it, Mr. Christian. And he would unload those buses by himself. So this happened again and again. Scenarios played out like this for a month simply because he wouldn't participate with them in their dishonesty. But he said, I learned about the providence of God because while all this was going on and I'm crying out to God saying, this isn't fair, Lord. Why should I be persecuted for doing what is right? Why should I be punished for doing the right thing? God was at work behind the scenes. One evening he got a call to the front office. The person he met with told him that they had had a suspicion of what was going on in the night shift and so they had sent supervisors to come and sit with binoculars from outside the gates and watch what was going on. They said, we intended to let every one of you go, bring some of you up on charges, he says, but our supervisor, after watching for the last month, every night, discovered you were the only one working. He said, as a result of that, he was immediately promoted over everyone else, even though he had the least amount of seniority, and he was made the boss of all of the rest of the people. He said, while I was unloading buses all by myself and the others were sleeping, God was working behind the scenes in Providence. Now, you can call that luck. You can call it coincidence. You can call it anything you want. It's the providence of God working behind the scenes in the life of His children. Some of you have experienced that. Others of you right now are feeling like you're in the middle of the one month when everything is going wrong and you're crying out and you don't know why. But I want you to know today that your obedience unlocks the door of God's blessing. Your obedience unlocks the door of God's salvation.